want you to take your Bibles and open them with me to our study of Revelation chapter 13. Last Lord's Day, we spent our time thinking about the importance of a Christ-reflecting life within relationships, but this morning we're returning to our study of Revelation. And a couple of weeks ago, we began to unfold what God is telling us concerning this tribulation time to come. As the Apostle John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, because of his own faith, he records this vision that God gives him. And in chapter 13, we are in the middle of what we have called an interlude. Not an interlude in action. I was thinking about this and trying to help us understand this. We really, up to this point, have seen the entire tribulation already happen in our study of Revelation. And this is really a look from another angle. This is uh, what is happening behind the scenes, if you will. This is a, a closer look at the, the who and the why of what is happening during the tribulation. It began for us back in chapter 12. It will continue up through chapter 15. And then we'll begin again as we pick up where we left off in chapter 16 with the seven bold judgments. It's as if God has uh, given John a magnifying glass, if you will, through which he John is seeing with greater detail a part of the whole picture. Sometimes you might look in a magazine or something and see a picture of something and then the editors have, have brought a piece of that out in a little circle. It's a magnifying of, of the larger thing. That's really what we're, we're in here. And it began back in chapter 12 and all along we have been introduced to some of the six major players during the tribulation period, the, the who of the tribulation. Back in chapter 12, we learned of this one called the woman. And we understood then through our study of that, that the woman is national Israel. That's not to confuse us. It's not something there that's trying to uh, cause us to think of other things. But it's clear from the Old Testament and through our study that this is national Israel that the talking about that he's referring to by the symbol of the woman and then we met the man child which the woman is pregnant with in the vision in this time here and of course we understand that to be representing Jesus Christ he's the one who came into the world through Israel he God brought Jesus here through that nation he came in as a Jew born as a child of the promise the child given through the promise to Israel, through the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant in the Old Testament. He's the one, as chapter 12, verse 5 says, will rule the world with an iron rod. The prophet spoke of Jesus Christ coming as one whom, on whom the government would rest. Not in the essence of the government like we know it, like we understand it, but Christ as the monarch over the earth for a thousand years. So we've met the woman, we've met the man-child, and we have met the dragon of old, the deceiver of the nations. I oftentimes think about this in light of the entire reality of prophecy and why people ask and why they're so confused as to why God told us of these things. And it really isn't that difficult to understand. The deceiver is deceiving and God told us these things so that we would not be deceived. We read a little bit about that even this morning. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, I don't want you to be deceived about these things. Even if a spirit tells you something, if you, if you get a letter as if it's from us that the, the tribulation has already happened or these, the end times have come, don't be confused about that. Paul's writing because he wants them to not be deceived. Why? Because the deceiver is there, the deceiver of the nation. The one who is behind all of the hatred that has been exercised against Israel over all of the centuries. He is the one who is even now currently on a mission to annihilate all of God's people, primarily Israel. He is the one who hates God and anyone who stands with Christ. He's none other than Satan himself, as the text tells us in chapter 12 and verse 9. The dragon that was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil. 
He knows that his time is short. And by the time the tribulation begins, the last seven, the final seven years of this judgment time, he, his time will be even shorter and his hatred will be at a fever pitch. No longer has access to God, no longer has access to heaven, no longer can stand there before God accusing the brethren day and night, as verse 10 tells us in chapter 12. So we know of the woman, we know of the man-child, we know of the great deceiver, and we also have met Michael, the archangel, in verse 7 of chapter 12. He and his army of angels that fight and war against Satan and his army of fallen angels, and Michael defeats them. <clears throat> Satan is cast out of heaven forever, and his annoying presence before God, bringing accusation against the Christian every day, is over, and they will be cast out of heaven to the earth for their final stand against God and against His people. Sometimes we come to Revelation, we read those things, and we think, man, this is rather fanciful. This seems like like uh, some kind of uh, futuristic novel that is written. And if it were not for the fact that God is who God is, and this is in fact God's Word, it would simply be a fanciful story. But none of this is story at all. This is all reality. This will take place because this is the Word of God. So last time we were here in Revelation chapter 13, and we met this puppet of Satan called the beast. And here is what John tells us. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, And he stood on the sand of the seashore. The he there, by the way, is Satan himself, the one who has been thrown down to the earth. We know that from the verse 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring to, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. Don't get confused. Some translators have translated that as if John was standing there as he's seeing this, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe the correct translation is he, Satan, is standing there. He is the one behind all of this. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, verse 1, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, every one whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance of the faith of the saints. This is an amazing accounting of what is to come. That's why I said it almost sounds fanciful. If it wasn't for God being who God is, we might think that. This is an amazing thing. We read something like this and we become very curious as to the details of it all. We want to have complete answers. We don't want to have any loose ends. We want to have everything tied up in a neat little box. We want complete clarity as to what is going on here. And yet we also understand that God has not chosen to give us every detail. 
He has not chosen to give us complete clarity. But God has given us exactly what He does want us to know. And He has given us all that He wants us to know so that we would do what He has created us to do. And that is to worship Him. To worship Him as the sovereign over all things. If we get nothing else from this text over the next several weeks, it is my prayer that we get this one truth locked in our minds. None of this is happening outside of God's permissive will. None of this is out happening without God allowing and controlling it all. God does not want us to know all detail or He would have given us all the detail. But He does want us to know through the detail that He has given us that He alone is God. There is no other God but Him and all things happen just as He has planned them to happen. This is important because while there is much speculation, in fact, speculation ad nauseum concerning unknown details, the one truth that God desires us to fully understand is that all this will take place because He is in control of it all and therefore we must understand what He did tell us in order that we might be motivated to tell others about life in Christ alone. If your understanding of end times does one thing for you, let it do this. Let it motivate you to tell others about Jesus Christ. So with that in the forefront of our minds, we're going to look at this passage over the next several weeks under these four Headlines, this, this kind of general outline. Number one, the description of the beast. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. We saw some of that last time. We'll try to finish up some of that this time. Two will be the adoration of or the adoration for the beast. In verses 3 and 4 and also in verse 8. The third heading or headline will be the operation of the beast. Verses 5 through 7. And then number 4, simply the conclusion for us as the reader. So you have the description of the beast, the adoration for the beast, the operation of the beast, and then the conclusion for us. Last time we began to look at the description of the beast. We began to note that he has a composite nature, a a composite character, and an amazing acclaim. Just by way of review, his composite nature. We looked at this last time, but it was a couple weeks ago, and so I'll just remind us of this. Verse 1 says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten diadems, and on his heads blasphemous names. This is the makeup of the nature of the beast. Remember, beast is simply that descriptive term. It is that term used for this malicious, vicious, merciless person that comes out of the mass of humanity. Paul referred to him in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we read this morning as the lawless one. He comes out of the sea of humanity. That's what it means there when it says the beast coming up out of the sea. Sea is humanity. You may read some, some somewhere believe he's talking about the abyss, this this demon, the super demon really that comes up out of the abyss because sometimes the abyss is referred to as sea. I, I don't necessarily think that's the accurate thing said here. I think sea more here talks about humanity. Of course, the horns mean power. The horns of the animal were power. And so this is great power. He has ten horns and he has great authority. Ten heads seven or seven heads uh, and ten horns, and so he has great power, great authority, and of course the diadems are just crowns, that's the term for crowns, and it just means dominion. So he has this great power, great authority, and great dominion. Ten horns obviously being symbolic of 
ten nations are really uh, symbolic of the whole world, really. It's not necessarily ten nations in a specific sense, but more in the sense of a, of a complete uh, power of the nations. Seven heads or seven kings, we know that. He's talking about kings because of chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, where he talks about this again, and he delineates that for us in verses 10 and 11 there as this being king. So these seven heads are kings and their authority associated with them. And of course the rulership and dominion over those are his. So this is a global ruler. This is a global human ruler under satanic control. He has great power. He has great authority. And he has dominion over the whole world. In fact, it is Satan himself who gives him the power and authority. We know he's satanically controlled. He's described here as the one who is like one who has a composite of them all. And he will be against God. Even though he claims to be the savior of the world, he will be against God. He is the ultimate antichristos. He is the, the full antichrist. He is the lawless one and Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, do not be deceived. Many antichrists are there. Many are coming. There will be many who say, I am the Christ. If you hear these out in the desert, don't go there. If you hear this about them, don't go there. These are all antichrists and the ultimate antichrist is coming. So John is seeing the final form of some kind of global union. And the beast embodies everything that was common to the, to the first or to the six great world empires, if you will. The empire of Egypt, the empire of Babylon, the empire of Syria, the Medo-Persian empire, the empire of Greece, and Rome. He is a, a conglomerate or a composite of all of those. Possibly even then now a revived Roman empire. If you don't understand all of that, you can get the CD from last time where... We tried to explain some of that. It's one that has never existed in any point of history in the past as it is here in this composite nature. And yet it would be revived as an eighth really because chapter 17 and verse 11 says that it is one who is not like the others. And yet it is a beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And yet he's one of the seven. So it's a composite of those. He's one of the seven of which Rome would be, and yet it's an eighth. It's a new revived, possibly even a revived Rome. And so the beast will be so powerful that we have nothing to compare him with, nothing to compare his rulership with, except the sum of all the other powerful empires that existed. This one will be more powerful than all of them put together, ruled by the Antichrist. And so therefore this kingdom is then an eighth global power but really he's of the seven so what we see in chapter 13 then in verse 1 is the beginning of the description of the beast and the worldwide global union that is brought together under this one man this is the final form of world domination ruled by the antichrist so when the beast comes and rises out of the sea, out of humanity, having seven heads, we know now that this is speaking of the culmination of all of the kingdoms in the past. It is the, the ultimate power and dominion over the world. And verse 1 says, on his heads are blasphemous names. That means that this kingdom is going to be characterized by blasphemous opposition against God. Blasphemous opposition against Christ and anyone standing with Christ. And I believe we must take a mental inventory of that last phrase. On his heads were blasphemous names. Because I believe our world is rapidly going in this direction. Standing against God. We're not in the tribulation now. Of course, the church is going to be taken out, but that no 
more gives us the onus to sit back and take a deep breath and go, it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is we know these things in order to motivate us to tell others about Jesus Christ so that all men would be saved who believe. And so we are motivated in that end. And yet we also know that our world is moving closer and closer and closer to this moment. There are many telling us today in our world that we, that we can make things better. And if we just knuckle down, if we just gather together, if we just become one-minded, that the world is going to be a better place. In fact, in light of the fact that man can can now uh, have all the information at his fingertips, that man is so wise in himself that he knows all kinds of things that man can invent and he can can even... uh, produce things that might remove, at least in his mind, disease and and hunger and world poverty and all these kinds of things, Uh, they believe the world is getting better. But for us, for us as Christians, and without seeming fatalistic or even having a pessimistic view of life in our minds, we Christians embrace the fact that by God's sovereign will and design, by God's control over all things, because of sin, the world will never get better. Ever. It will never become the utopia that so many dream of. Ever. It will not be that way until God recreates. Gives a new heaven and a new earth. It will not be the utopia that people dream of Until sin is no more. This world will be as God has designed it to be. The world will get worse than today even. There is coming a day when the global domination of the Antichrist will publicly blaspheme God. Publicly stand up against God and against His people. And the world will not only know it. But the world will even embrace it. That's the composite nature of the beast. The second thing in this description he has is a composite character. A composite character. Look at verse 2. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like that of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. You can stop right there for a moment. Because there are some who believe that the Antichrist is not a person at all. In fact, they would believe it's a system of government, some type of system. And yet the Bible always describes the Antichrist in terms that are human terms. He is a he. It is himself. In fact, just to show you this again, go back for a moment to what we read earlier this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says... Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure, disturbed by either a spirit, a message, or a letter from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. You see? Over and over again, just in this one passage, the Antichrist is referred to as a person. He is one who is himself going to sit in the seat of God. He himself is going to claim to be God. Now, I want to take you also back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Those of you who are in the Daniel study, you may find this to be a bit redundant since you went through this some time ago. But Daniel also gets a vision of the very things that Revelation is describing. And he describes it for us. Beginning in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of Babylon. Israel has been exiled to Babylon, which is modern-day Iran and Iraq. They are there in captivity under the Babylonian Empire, one of the great empires of the day, of the world. 
And Nebuchadnezzar has had a vision from God, and no one is able to interpret it. And Daniel is remembered that he is an interpreter of dreams. So Daniel is brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar has a a dream of the final man-made kingdom that's going to come in world history. There were four kingdoms in the image that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. This incredible vision he gave him was that of a huge statue, and in that statue it was made up of gold and of silver and bronze and then iron and clay. You notice that back in verse 31 of that chapter. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and extraordinarily splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And Daniel tells him the, what it was. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its breast was in arms of silver. Its belly and its thighs bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly iron and partly clay. And eventually, of course, there is a stone that is cut out without hands, verse 34 says, that represents the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it strikes at the feet of this large statue, and it crushes it all at the same time, verse 35 says, and it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors that the wind carried away, so there wasn't a trace of them to be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the culmination, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is the culmination of all of human history. And Christ will rule. But before Christ comes, a lot had to take place. We know from history how it's all played out. We can look back in antiquity and we know the history of our world. The gold part of the statue represented the Babylonian Empire. You can look in verse 37 and 38. O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, and whatever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the birds, beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, he has given into your hands, has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So we know from history, we know from the text that Babylon represented that. The gold head was Nebuchadnezzar. Go down a little farther, verse 39. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth, and then, of course, a fourth. So the silver part is the Medo-Persian Empire, and you'll see that as we go along. The next part of this thing, the the bronze part, is the Greek uh, Empire. And then, of course, the Iron Legs was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Then you have these feet and ten toes in verse 41. In that that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. So it will be strong, verse 42, and part of it will be brittle. Part of it will be brittle. So what Daniel is seeing and what Daniel is describing, representing the final form of, the final kingdom before Christ comes, which is possibly the revived Roman Empire. Rome is the iron, right? Iron before that, we knew that. The thighs of iron mixed so that Rome is involved as a major player in the final days. And yet this empire comes at the end and it is ultimately destroyed and the whole of human history comes tumbling down under the power of God's earthly kingdom, which is under Christ. So here in Daniel chapter 2, right early on, right out of the gate, as the the head is being talked about, or the, the one who is the head is being told the interpretation of this dream, here you have the, the final form of the, the final world empire that goes way beyond the, the, the Roman Empire as it was, more than that, and it's a conglomeration really of all of the the others put together, which will 
be put to an end by Jesus Christ, the stone cut out without hands. And so Daniel in chapter 2 interprets the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar about the first world form of government. And he goes all the way through to the last form. Right there in the statue, you have all of human history and the last form being crushed under Christ. And the ten toes of the final form of government are parallel to the ten kings that you see in Revelation. There's this totality of governing rule under the Antichrist. Now go over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7... It says this, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is one who's followed in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my night vision, or my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had wings of an eagle. I kept looking, and the wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and a dominion was given to it. And as I kept looking at the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Sounds very familiar to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, doesn't it? And then Daniel in verse 15 of chapter 7 start to, he starts to interpret the vision that he had. Here's what he says. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things, these great beasts which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. He's not talking about the saints of the highest king of the four. He's talking about Christ, the saints of the highest king. And then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder with its feet. The meaning of the ten horns that was on its head, the other horn which came up before the three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. And in verse 23... Or actually, go back to verse 21. I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Sounds very much like Revelation chapter 13. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. There's the millennial kingdom. And thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. That's 42 months. But the court will sit in judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. When it says the court, that's the court of heaven. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. 
And at this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. And my face grew pale, but I kept this matter to myself. This is just a review for us of the reality of human history and the way in which God has planned it. And Daniel gets this vision of these kingdoms. And these kingdoms are, are talked about in, in light of one being like a lion, one being like a, a bear, one being like a leopard, one being exceedingly greater than all of them. And then in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has a subsequent dream to this dream that he just had in which he gets a little more clarity as to these beasts or these kingdoms. Notice he said, I, verse 3, I lifted my gaze and looked and behold a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. The two horns were long, were long but one was longer than the other which the longer one coming up with the longer one coming up last. Remember, horns are power. And I saw the ram budding westward. Northward, southward, no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So one is a ram, one of these kingdoms, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, verse 4. It was split off. The ram has two horns. One kingdom with two powers. In fact, verse 20 tells us the ram you saw with the two horns represents kings of Medo-Persia. So we know who the ram is. It's two, two powers, one kingdom. And then verse 21 says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, then The broken horn and the four horns that arose from it represent four kingdoms which arise from that nation, although not with his power. Notice that in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 8. So all of that in history talks about really the movements and the the conquering of Alexander the Great. As you remember, you can read in history books, his kingdom was divided into four different kingdoms. And you can see that and that Daniel is being given the outline here of human history. Daniel describes his prophecy for us and that there will be some beasts that that are going to to make clear the character of these four kingdoms. Medo-Persia, Rome, Greece, Babylonian Empire. Now go back to Revelation chapter 13. Because in chapter 13 and verse 2, John sees... In this beast, the Antichrist, he sees, notice, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Here's the point. Here's the point at which John is seeing. When the final kingdom comes, even though it is a ten-toed, multiple confederacy of of, uh, the world empire under Antichrist, possibly a revived Roman kind of empire. It will engulf the whole world, but it will also have a character of all the strengths of Greece, the character of all of the strengths of the Medo-Persian Empire, and the characteristics of all of the strengths of Babylon. That's what we're seeing. In other words, the kingdom of Antichrist, in its final form, will be a mixture of all of the strengths and weaknesses of all the previous world empires. And yet ultimately it will be crushed by Christ. That's what John sees here. The final beast looking like the leopard, which is Greece, looking like the bear, which was Medo-Persia, looking like the lion, which was Babylon. Because it seems to have been a composite of them all. He is being described as the makeup of all of them. Let's not be deceived. Let's not be deceived. The, the man Antichrist comes on the scene and he is the embodiment of the, the whole prophetic picture of the end time in terms of human history. So he is. He is the head and culmination of all of the great empires. He is the, the makeup of them all. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Egypt, Assyria. All of the weaknesses, all of the strengths of all of those nations, all of those world empires, 
ultimately in a final kingdom come against Christ. Daniel saw that. John sees it. God desires us to see it. Why? So that we will not be deceived. So that we'll know. That's the detail that he wants us to know. Some will say, well, who is that going to be? I, I don't know. God didn't tell us that. I don't know who that's going to be by way of his identity in person, but I know this. This is the characteristic of it. This is the composite nature of it. This is the composite characteristic of it. The Antichrist has a composite nature. He has composite character. And then lastly, notice, he has an amazing acclaim. It says in verse 2, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Remember, the beast is a world leader. He's a global leader, but he represents a composite power, a conglomerate of power. That is just simply to say this. He is not alone in this. He's not acting alone. He is composite in nature. He has seven heads, as verse 1 tells us. In other words, the power, the authority, the rule of many are on his side. And most importantly, he has been given the power, the rule, and the authority of Satan himself. He is a puppet of Satan. He is satanically possessed. He is satanically driven. While he's human in reality, it is Satan calling the shots. Satan's behind it all. Satan is being allowed by God to infiltrate and to succumb and to do all that he's doing. Satan has given him his power. Satan has given him his throne. Satan has given him great authority. He is still, Satan is still attempting to crush the plan of God. He's still attempting to crush the promise of God and thereby crush the people of God. That is Satan's goal. That is Satan's desire. That's what he always wants to do. In fact, the text says he has great authority, this one. Great authority. Megas exousia. Great authority. Great ability. Great power. In other words, he has a right to act. He has the freedom to act. He can do as he wishes. He has no accountability. He has no restraint. And no one is stopping him from doing anything that he wants to do. That's power. It's going to be exactly like that time that we read about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The restrainer is removed. The reason why the world isn't as bad as it could be today is because God restrains wickedness you understand that god restrains wickedness listen if mankind was left to himself with no restrainer in the way this world would quickly become the wickedest it could ever become and right here you're seeing it the restrainer is removed the man of lawlessness is at the height all restraint is gone god as romans 1 says says have it your way god gives man over And man becomes the very outcropping of all the sin that has ever been in his heart. The amazing part is that at the same time, the lawless one is unleashed in his satanically controlled rage against those who stand with Christ. God is outpouring his righteous wrath upon man. This is all part of the hand of God. As God is collapsing the universe around men, Men are facing the wrath of their own sinfulness under the head of the one who is controlled by Satan, allowed by God to do it. All those that dwell upon the earth are facing the wrath of God. What a time of dread. What a time. This is not fanciful, folks. This is real. This is reality. The pain and the devastation will be unimaginable. And it will be in the midst of all of that chaos that this one Antichrist will shine. You say, why would he shine? Because he will seem invincible. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. What an amazing acclaim. The word slain there is the same word used back in chapter 5 and verse 6, speaking about Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. It's the same word. What could be more worldwide Or what could bring more worldwide popularity to any kind of human being than someone apparently coming back to life? Isn't it ironic 
that what man denies to be true today about Jesus Christ, man will buy lock, stop, and barrel, lock, stock, and barrel when the Antichrist assumingly does the very same thing. The composite kingdom, one of its heads is going to bear a mortal wound and at least have the evidence, at least, of some kind of mortal wound and then come back to life or at least have appearing to have died, come back to life. It will be the greatest deception ever. In fact, notice down in verse 12, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in the appearance, he, and he makes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It's described for us here as a fatal wound, whether it's the actual reality of being an actual fatal wound or whether it's simply the fact that it's the greatest deception in that it looks like a fatal wound, but it really isn't. Either way, the, the result's the same. The whole world worships him because apparently he comes back to life. In fact, verse 14 says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. This is the lesser beast pointing at the greater beast and saying, look, you worship him. What a deception. What a deception. And verse 3 says, and the whole earth was amazed. The whole earth. Is it any wonder that he could rise to power over the entire world? Is it any wonder in verse 4 they say, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? He can't even be killed. The lawless, godless deceiver, satanically controlled, and the godless by it, lock, stock, and barrel. Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 24, He said, When will these things come? He said, I tell you these things so that you will not be deceived. Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, I'm writing this so that you will not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. John saw this vision and God gave us the details that he wanted to give us so that we would not be deceived. This is hard stuff to contemplate, isn't it? I mean, this causes our mind to just kind of go and lock up and vapor lock. It's hard stuff to hear. What do you mean? All of this is going to happen? All of this is going to take place? All of this is real? Yes. I mean, it's like this grand puzzle, all these heads and horns and things like that and beasts and all this kind of stuff symbolically telling us of the 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 nature and the character of this one to come and the world is going to to worship him. That's hard to contemplate. That's hard to hear. It's a hard book to preach because every time you come to it, more judgment, more judgment, more bad news. Isn't it that we skip out of here? Hey, that was great. Boy, that was encouraging to my soul. What I want us as Christians to hear, though, this morning and realize about all of this, what I want us to be reminded about is something that we already know, something that we need to, to, to speak in our own minds every single day. Let me just read it for us again, beginning in verse 5. This is what I want us to remember. We already know this. We've heard about it. Key in on this, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words. There was given to him an authority to act for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and nation was given to him notice that let that rest in your heart preach that to yourself every day listen this was given to him for a purpose let's not ever doubt let's not ever forget this one fact upon which all of this bad news rests let us not ever forget where we started our time this morning god is overseeing it all god is allowing it all In fact, God has determined it all. And to this one through Satan, God has permitted it all. Why? So that you and I would know. So that we would know without any doubt in our mind whatsoever that our salvation in Christ is forever secure. Why? Because God is in charge of it all. 
Because God orchestrates it all, because God has determined it all, because God, even through Satan, has permitted it all. And nothing can hinder God from displaying his glory and nothing can hinder God from extolling his own majesty and his dominion forever and ever and ever. Our salvation is forever secure because it's God who saved us. And so John is saying with all the rest of the writers of Scripture, be not deceived. Be not deceived. God is saying to us this morning, be not deceived because God has told us in advance what is to come. This isn't just some fanciful book that we read and go, well, maybe. No, God has told us what is going to come. So here's the point. Magnify Christ. God has told us what is to come. Be not deceived. And every day, magnify Christ. Tell others about Christ because it's only in Christ that they find security. Proclaim the gospel to everybody who hears. The Antichrist has been described. Shocking upon shocking reality, he will be adored. We'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've told us. Thank you for the description of the Antichrist that we have here through the vision of your servant John. Lord, we know that you have told us exactly what you would have us to know and no more. And our hearts, curious hearts, would always want more because what you have told us and what we know of you seems to be in our own sinful heart not enough. Let us rest in what you have told us. Let us make sure that we allow our curiosity to go only so far. Let it not take us outside the realm of what your word has told us, but let us live with worshipful honor and security in the reality of what you did tell us. Let us know that in you, through our Savior Jesus Christ, we are secure. That while we may look at these things and have wonder, stand in amazement, We know that you have allowed them for your glory, for your purposes, and so that we would ultimately rest in the comfort and joy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All we pray that you would implore us and motivate us by the power of your Spirit to share the gospel with all whom we know that are still on this earth who have the opportunity to believe. Help us share the gospel with everybody around so that they might know Christ, so that they might really know life And know it abundantly. Thank you for your word. And the truth of it. The relevancy of it through every age. Thank you for being clear with us. Bless us now Lord as we continue our worship time together. And through fellowship together in just a little while. Honor your name in us we pray. In Jesus name. Amen.